Volume One, Chapter Two of Gwen Wynne. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Marianne. Gwen Wynne, A Romance of the Why, by Maine Reed. Chapter Two The Hero. Then Vivian Rycroft, a handsomer man, never carried a sling jacket over his shoulder or Sabretasha on his hip, for he is in the Hussars, a captain. He is not on duty now, nor anywhere near the scene of it. His regiment is at Aldershot, himself resuscitating in Herefordshire, whither he has come to spend a few weeks' leave of absence. Nor is he, at the time of our meeting him, in the saddle, which he sits so gracefully, but in a rowboat on the River Wye, the same just sighted by Gwen Wynne through the double lens of her lorgnette. Nor is he wearing the braided uniform and busby, but instead attired in a suit of light chevots, piscator cut, with a helmet-shaped cap of quilted cotton on his head, its rounded rim of spotless white in striking, but becoming, contrast with his bronzed complexion and dark military moustache. For Captain Rycroft is no mere strapling nor beardless youth, but a man turned thirty, browned by exposure to Indian suns, experienced in Indian campaigns, from those of the Sindh and the Punjab to that most memorable of all, the mutiny. Still, he is personally as attractive as he ever was, to women, possibly more, among these causing a flutter, with reproachment towards him almost instinctive, when and wherever they may meet him. In the present many a bright English lady sighs for him, as in the past many a dark damsel of Hindostan, and without his heaving sigh, or even giving them a thought in return. Not that he is of cold nature, or in any sense austere, instead warm-hearted, of cheerful disposition, and rather partial to female society. But he is not, and never has been, either man-flirt or frivolous trifler, else he would not be fly-fishing on the Wye, for that is what he is doing there, instead of in London, taking part in the festivities of the season, by day dawdling in Rotten Row, by night exhibiting himself in an opera-box or ballroom. In short, Vivian Rycroft is one of those rare individuals, to a high degree endowed, physically as mentally, without being aware of it, or appearing so, while to all others it is very perceptible." He has been about a fortnight in the neighborhood, stopping at the chief hotel of a riverine town much affected by fly-fishermen and tourists. Still, he has made no acquaintance with the resident gentry. He might, if wishing it, which he does not, his purpose upon the why not being to seek society, but salmon, or rather the sport of taking it. An ardent discipline of the ancient Isaac, he cares for naught else, at least, in the district where he is for the present sojourning. Such is his mental condition, up to a certain morning, when a change comes over it, sudden as the spring of a salmon at the gaudiest or most tempting of his flies, this brought about by a face of which he has caught sight by merest accident, while following his favourite occupation. Thus it has chanced. Below the town where he is staying, some four or five miles by the course of the stream, he has discovered one of those places called catches, where the king of river fish delights to leap at flies, whether natural or artificial, a sport it has oft reason to rue, several times so, at the end of Captain Rycroft's line and rod, 
he having there twice hooked a twenty-pounder, and once a still larger specimen, which turned the scale at thirty. In consequence that portion of the stream has become his choicest angling ground, and at least three days in the week he repairs to it. The row is not much going down, but a good deal returning, five miles upstream, most of it strong adverse current. That, however, is less his affair than his oarsman's. A young waterman by the name of Wingate, whose boat and services the Hussar officer has chartered by the week, indeed, engage them for so long as he may remain upon the Wye. On the morning in question, dropping down the river to his accustomed whipping-place, but at a somewhat later hour than usual, he meets another boat coming up, the pleasure-craft, as shown by its style of outside ornament and inside furniture. Of neither does the salmon-fisher take much note, his eyes all occupied with those upon the thwarts. There are three of them, two being ladies seated in the stern sheets, the third an oarsman on a thwart well forward to make better balance. And to the latter the Hussar officer gives but a glance, just to observe that he is a serving-man, wearing some of its insignia in the shape of a cockaded hat and striped stable waistcoat, and not much more than a glance at one of the former, but a gaze, concentrated and long as good manners will permit, at the other, who is steering, when she passes beyond sight, her face remaining in his memory, vivid as if still before his eyes. All this, at a first encounter, repeated in a second, which occurs on the day succeeding, under similar circumstances, and almost in the self-same spot, then the face, if possible, seeming fairer, and the impression made by it upon Vivian Rycroft's mind sinking deeper, indeed, promising to be permanent. It is a radiant face, set in a luxuriance of bright amber hair, for it is that of Gwendoline Wynne. On the second occasion he has a better view of her, the boats passing nearer to one another, still, not so near as he could wish, good manners again interfering. For all, he feels well satisfied, especially with the thought, that his own gaze earnestly given, though under such restraint, has been with earnestness returned. Would that his secret admiration of its owner were in like manner reciprocated. Such is his reflective wish as the boats widen the distance between them, one laboring slowly up, the other gliding swiftly down. His boatmen cannot tell who the lady is, nor where she lives. On the second day he is not asked, the question having been put to him on the preceding. All the added knowledge now obtained is the name of the craft that carries her, which, after passing, the waterman, with face turned toward its stern, makes out to be the Gwendoline, just as on his own boat, the Mary, though not in such grand golden letters. It may assist Captain Rycroft in his inquiries, already contemplated, and he makes a note of it. Another night passes. Another sun shines over the Y and again he drops downstream to his usual place of sport, this day only to draw blank, neither catching salmon nor seeing hair of amber hue, his reflecting on which is, perchance, a cause of the fish not taking to his flies, cast carelessly. He is not discouraged, but goes again on the day succeeding, that same day when his boat is viewed through the binocular. He has already formed a half-suspicion that the home of the interesting water-nymph is not far from that pagoda-like structure he has frequently noticed on the right bank of the river, for just below the outlying ayat is where he has met the pleasure-boat, and the old oarsman looked anything but equal to a long pull upstream. Still, 
Between that and the town are several other gentlemen's residences on the riverside, with some standing inland. It may be any of them. But it is not, as Captain Rycroft now feels sure, at sight of some floating drapery in the pavilion, with two female heads showing over its baluster rail, one of them with tresses glistening in the sunlight, bright as sunbeams themselves. He views it through a telescope, for he, too, has come out provided for distant observation, this confirming his conjectures just the way he would wish. Now there will be no difficulty in learning who the lady is, for of one only does he care to make inquiry. He would order Wingate to hold way, but does not relish the idea of letting the waterman into his secret, and so, remaining silent, he is soon carried beyond the sight of the summer-house, and along the outer edge of the islet, with his curtain of tall trees coming invidiously between. Continuing on to his angling-ground, he gives way to reflections, at first of a pleasant nature, satisfactory to think that she, the subject of them, at least lives in a handsome house, for a glimpse got of its upper story tells it to be this, that she is in social rank a lady, he has hitherto had no doubt, the pretty pleasure-craft and its appendages, with the venerable domestic acting as oarsman, are all proofs of something more than mere respectability, rather evidences of style. Marring these agreeable considerations is the thought he may not to-day meet the pleasure-boat. It is the hour that, from past experience, he might expect it to be out, for he has so timed his own piscatorial excursion, but, seeing the ladies in the summer-house, he doubts getting nearer sight of them, at least for another twenty-four hours. In all likelihood they have been already on the river, and returned home again. Why did he not start earlier? While thus fretting himself, he catches sight of another boat, of a sort very different from the Gwendoline, a heavy barge-like affair, with four men in it, hulking fellows, to whom rowing is evidently a new experience. Notwithstanding this, they do not seem at all frightened at finding themselves upon the water. Instead, they are behaving in a way that shows them either very courageous, or very regardless of a danger, which, possibly, they are not aware of. At short intervals one or the other is seen starting to his feet, and rushing fore or aft, as if on an empty coal-wagon, instead of in a boat, and in such a fashion, that were the craft at all crank, it would certainly be upset. On drawing nearer them, Captain Rycroft and his oarsmen get the explanation of their seemingly eccentric behavior, its cause made clear by a black bottle, which one of them is holding in his hand, each of the others brandishing tumbler or teacup. They are drinking, and that they have been so occupied for some time is evident by their loud shouts and grotesque gesturing. They look an ugly lot, observes the young waterman, viewing them from over his shoulder, for, seated at the oars, his back is towards them. Coal fellows, from the forest of Dean, I take it. Rycroft, with a cigar between his teeth, dreamily thinking of a boat with people in it so dissimilar, simply signifies assent with a nod. But soon he is roused from his reverie, at hearing an exclamation louder than common, followed by words whose import concerns himself and his companion. These are, "'Dang it, lads! Lee's go in for a bit o' lark! Yonner be boat comin' down wi' two chaps in it! Some o' them spick-span city gents! Suppose we gi' em a capsize!' "'Lee's do it! Lee's dunk em! shouted the others, assentingly, he with the bottle dropping it into the boat's bottom, and laying hold of an oar instead. All act likewise, for it is a four-oared craft that carries them, 
and in a few seconds' time they are rowing straight for that of the anglers. With astonishment and fast-gathering indignation, the Hussar officer sees the heavy barge coming bow on for his light fishing skiff, and is thoroughly sensible of the danger, the watermen becoming aware of it at the same instant of time. "'They mean mischief,' mutters Wingate. "'What do we best do, Captain? If you like, I can keep clear, and shoot the merry past him easy enough.' "'Do so,' returns the salmon-fisher, with the cigar still between his teeth, but he now held bitterly tight, almost to biting off the stump. "'You can keep on,' he adds, speaking calmly, and with an effort to keep down his temper. "'That will be the best way, as things stand now. They look like they'd come up from below, and, if they show any ill manners at meeting, we can call them to account on return. Don't concern yourself about your course. I'll see to the steering. There, hard on the starboard oar.' This last, as the two boats have arrived within less than three lengths of one another. At the same time, Rycroft, drawing tight on the port tiller cord, changes course suddenly, leaving just sufficient seaway for his oarsmen to shave past and avoid the threatened collision, which is done the instant after, to the discomfiture of the would-be capsizers. As the skiff glides lightly beyond their reach, dancing over the river's swell, as if in triumph and to mock them, they drop their oars, and sent after it a chorus of yells, mingled with blasphemous imprecations. In a lull between, the Hussar officer at length takes the cigar from his lips, and calls back to them. "'You ruffians! You shall rue it! Shout on! Till your horse! There's a reckoning for you, perhaps sooner than you expect!' "'Yes, ye damn scoundrels!' adds the young waterman, himself so enraged as almost to foam at the mouth, You'll have to pay dear for sich a dastardly attempt to waylay Jack Wingate's boat, that will ye. Bah, jeeringly retorts one of the roughs, to blazes with ye, and your boat. Ay, to the blazes with ye, echoes the other drunken chorus, and, while their voices are still reverberating along the adjacent cliffs, the fishing skiff darts round a bend of the river, bearing its owner and his fare out of their sight, as beyond earshot of their profane speech. End of chapter 2